0: Americans don't like mixing politics and religion. It's awkward. As we've all been told, it's rude to discuss either politics or religion in polite company. And the only thing that could be worse would be just to discuss them together. It seems we are allowed to have political opinions. We are allowed to have religious convictions. But what seems off limits is the idea that our religious convictions are directly relevant for our political opinions. It seems vaguely un-American to assert that our political problems can only be solved through a religious solution. To assert that proper politics are tied directly to proper religion raises some serious problems for our self-conception. So what I'm gonna gonna say tonight may very well make some of us um, uncomfortable, myself probably the most up here, but I think our society has arrived at a degree of crisis, that it's probably time to start being a bit uncomfortable It's time to start entertaining the possibility that we've had things wrong. It's time to start entertaining the possibility that a drastic reassessment is in order. So what I wanna talk about um, tonight is the political radicalism of the gospel, the revolutionary nature of Christianity. And what I'm gonna argue is that from its very beginnings, the church was politically radical, that it worked directly to overthrow tyrannies, and to establish societies of justice, but that it worked, but it did this in a manner unlike any other revolutionary movement. It did not attempt to defeat tyranny at its own game. It rather undid tyranny by passing through it and rendering it impotent. Christianity is directly political, not because it is another political force, another ideological faction raising armies or winning elections. If it was so, it wouldn't really be radical at all. It would just be another aspect of the world. Rather, Christianity defeats violence through peace and not with more powerful violence. But at the same time, I am not equivocating about what it means to defeat a tyranny. I am not saying that Christianity leaves the tyrannies of the world alone while it pursues some higher calling. When I say it defeats them, I mean it literally, concretely, physically. Christianity brings tyrants to their knees. Tyrannies fall because of Christianity. I'm gonna try to demonstrate this tonight by working first through some key passages in the Gospels, placing them in in the context of their historical and political moment, and then moving forward through the early church and the period of martyrdom, and ultimately the conversion of the Roman Empire, and then end with some thoughts on our own situation. A central piece of Christ's teaching was the declaration that the kingdom of God was at hand. The phrase kingdom of God appears about 80 times, or exactly 80 times, I think, in the New Testament. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the New Testament is about the coming of the kingdom of God. In order to understand the meaning and significance of this assertion, I want to pull back a little and talk about kingship and divinity in the ancient world. Among the ancient nations, kings were understood to be gods, or at least the sons of gods. This was a direct consequence of the fall when mankind had sought to become godlike had sought to become the source of truth of good and evil, the source of order and so of all power. This was, of course, a tragic mistake that was doomed to fail. It was doomed because mankind had been created as a rational being whose rationality was a participation in the rationality of God himself, the creator of the cosmos. We were made then to partake in the truth of things, to live in a truth whose source was beyond ourselves and beyond the things that we knew. Man knows the truth only in humility, only within the recognition that, we know what, what, that what we know is not the whole truth. As St. Thomas Aquinas would remark, it is impossible for man himself to know the nature of even a single gnat. We know the truth only by participating in truth itself, which is infinitely greater than us. We participate in the truth like a child participating in the life of his parents. This is profoundly humbling. After the fall, though, what mankind did was attempt to set himself up as the source of order, as the source of true and false, of good and evil. Instead of looking up in humility, we looked down in pride, ordering the world beneath us. This was an attempt at self-liberation. Instead of being under a greater law, we would fashion ourselves as the source of law. But it resulted instead in the most pitiful slavery because it resulted in fear. When men are divorced from the love and truth of God, from the transcendent, the world becomes a place of frightening powers. The storms are powerful. The animals are powerful. Hunger is powerful. Disease is powerful. But most frightening of all is the power of other men. In this situation, people begin immediately to try and control the world, control each other, to dominate. What develops out of this unrelenting anxiety is conflict conflict that culminated in the slave states of antiquity, the pagan kingdoms ruled by godmen. It is important for us to understand how paganism worked. So let's ask, why did pagans sacrifice to their gods? What sense could there be in killing a goat and burning it up? Well, the answer is that they performed such rites in the pursuit of certain rewards or to avoid certain punishments. You killed the goat so you would have a good crop that year. But of course, killing a goat has no direct natural causal link to your crops. It's not like watering your crops or weeding your fields, for example. But the disconnect was the very point of the right. The right only worked because a third party, a power that was neither in the goat nor the fields, created a causal link between them through an act of arbitrary will, the will of a god which was only known, and this is a key part, it was only known through the commands of kings and priests. Such a system then rendered as suspect reason itself and the very ordering of the world by inserting arbitrary will into the midst of it. Even the cycles of the seasons, many pagans came to believe required the performance of arbitrary rites to appease fickle gods. So for example, Pharaoh was necessary in order to make the Nile flood every year a man made the life-giving waters come. He was a god. What this means is that even the ordered world of nature became beset with anxiety, an anxiety that could only be assuaged through submission to the kings and their priests who were either gods themselves or who placated the gods and mediated their will to the masses. This is how they maintained a sort of peace. The pagan regimes were built on anxiety, on fear, the more fearful their people were of the gods, the more power could be amassed through the rites that placated them. The brilliance of the system is that its failure simply makes it stronger. What I mean is that if the rites fail to produce the desired results, that is because they were not done properly or with the proper devotion or because the gods had new demands, all of which require power to be, more power to be given to the kings. In the pagan world, all kingdoms were kingdoms of God, in a manner of speaking. This is an inversion of, a man, of mankind's original condition. Before the Fall, man had mediated the power of God down and into creation. After the Fall, in the pagan states, the power of men was mediated through the gods, through the idols. The gods were mechanisms of domination. The Roman Empire was entering into a late phase of of such politics when Christ was born. Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, reigned at the time of the nativity. He was acclaimed as divine, as a living God. His divine status was based upon his power. The peace of the empire that rested on the devastating effectiveness of its legions and the terror inspired by its raw power was thought thought to flow through him. He was a God of power. There was a sort of virtue in the Romans that made their empire possible. They disciplined themselves, trained themselves, sacrificed superficial pleasures and dedicated their lives to something bigger than any one of them. But this thing, this love to which they were devoted was nothing more than glory, nothing more than the intoxicating exaltation of power. This was their real God, power itself. If the weather had power, it was a god. If the river had power, it was a god. The people understood the power that everywhere affected their lives, demanding their submission to the aspects of the divine. They worshiped these instances of power, but it was not the worship of adoration or thanksgiving that Christians have grown accustomed to. It was more likely to be attempts at placating the divine power of seeking its favor and mitigating its wrath. Power was divine and he who wielded power was a God or at least the son of a God. The emperor was not a God because he had some magical ceremony uh, because of some magical ceremony or because he had some secret knowledge. He was a God because he could marshal the force to destroy nations. He held life and death in his hands and meted it out according to his will. This to the Romans was divinity. What we need to see is that residents of the Roman Empire lived under the power of others, men and gods, to whom they were expected to submit or suffer the swift and pitiless consequences. This produced a certain fatalism, the belief that the course of one's life is out of one's hands and is the result of the arbitrary will of others, which leads to despair and fear. People were scared, and fear produces two related behaviors. One is the move towards servility, uh, toward the safety of slavery. The other is is toward the desire for power, the drive to amass for oneself the ability to determine fates, to steal from the gods, to become godlike to others, to achieve glory. This was the circular source of Rome's ambition for power, what St. Augustine called its libido dominandi, its lust for domination. Christ was born into a Jewish culture that was subject to this Roman empire and his declaration that the kingdom of God was at hand and that he was in fact, the son of God must be read directly in this context. It was radically subversive. This is not some sort of spiritualized subversion with no immediate political consequence. Christ was talking about being the king of the Jews. The Pharisees recognized this immediately and so challenged Christ by asking him him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And you see what they're doing here, right? It's as if they're saying, oh, you're a king, are you? Right? You're a king. Are you such a king? Are you the same kind of king as Caesar? You're going to stand up to Caesar, the real king? Right? And Jesus responds, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the money for the tax. And they brought him a tribute penny. And he continued, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Is this? And they replied that it was Caesar's. And Christ responded, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now we have to take a moment and understand what is going on here. On the obverse, the head side of the penny, it bore the image of Tiberius, the current emperor, with the inscription, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It literally said Caesar, son of God. On the reverse, the tail side, it had an image of the queen mother as the goddess Peace. The coin was struck for the very purpose of maintaining the power of a god king. It was itself an idol and its dutiful payment was a form of submission, even worship. Christ attacks this directly. He looks at the penny and sees it for what it is, merely the mechanism, the property of the man called Caesar. Like all idols, it is merely the work of human hands, fashioned of metal and cast by men. There's nothing divine about Caesar's power. The coin is an empty boast. Therefore, give it back to its owner. But do so not with the worship for which it is made, but rather as what it really is. Give worship, however, to the true God, the true king. Give to the true king what is his. And what is his? Just a couple lines later, Christ tells us, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is left to the same chapter? (laughs) So what is left for Caesar? his worthless little coin, and his absurd claim to be a god. This was sedition. Christ's assertion to be a son of God who had come to establish a kingdom was clearly rebellious. This treason formed the basis of Christ's trial. The Jews brought Christ before Pilate with the charge that he asserted himself to be the king of the Jews and the son of God. In the political theological world in which they lived, these claims amounted to the same thing. So Pilate asked Christ, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So Christ confused Pilate. To Pilate as a Roman, kingship simply was worldly power. To not have an army was to be no king at all. Christ asserted that he was a king, but that he did not fight for worldly power because his power came not from armies, but from the truth, not from below, but from above. To Pilate, this was a sort of nonsense. Now it is very tempting to read Christ's response as some sort of spiritualized dodge of the implications of Christ's kingship to read it as if Christ was saying, don't worry, I don't mean that kind of king. You worldly kings have nothing to worry about. It's tempting to read this as if his kingdom didn't have anything to do with the world, that it wasn't in the world, that it is sort of laid on top of the world and so leaves the kings of the world alone. But this I think is wrong. Christ's assertion is that his kingdom is not from the world, not that it is not in the world. As I explained earlier, Mankind was created to live in the truth of God. His ability to understand and so order the world through his own rationality, his true power, we might say, was dependent upon his humbled, upward-looking reception of the truth of God. This reception of the truth and then the creative, rational mediation of the truth into the world was the manner in which mankind had been created to have dominion and to subdue, to be true kings. This is what had been perverted through the fall into fear and domination and the construction of the pagan states with their extrinsic law codes and their rights that demonized men. The power of such a system comes from below, from the world. The power of true kingship comes from above, from the truth. Christ restores truth and grace and the internal conversion of hearts to the true and the good. He rules men, not from below, but from above, not through fear, but through truth. However, this does not leave the power of the world alone. Men who live in the truth, in the truth are no longer living in the order of fear. What the order of fear promises, but can't, but can't ever really deliver is peace, the, uh, and peace, the end of anxiety, is exactly what is fulfilled in the regime of truth. Members of Christ's kingdom are unilaterally no longer members of Caesar's kingdom. They are no longer subject to his power because they no longer live in the world of anxiety and fear that his power, like all pagan power, depends upon. Christ's kingdom of truth undoes the very foundations of the worldly kingdoms by making possible the most secure basis of order, truth and goodness. The power of the God King is the power of a liar. His claim is that peace comes only through his power from below Christ reveals that men restored to truth through grace, however, are not subject to this power of lies. Through the truth and grace that heals them and elevates them into themselves, into what they really are as persons and children of God, through Christ's kingdom, they can have peace. And this is the key idea. They can have peace without Caesar because they fit in the world. They are at home in the cosmos of reason. This is a more radical rebellion than any army could have mounted. Far from leaving them alone, the establishment of Christ's kingdom destroys the very logic of the pagan kingdoms. However, none of this makes sense to Pilate because he doesn't have a concept of truth that is distinct from power. He is a Roman through and through. Power is truth. Truth is nothing more than power. So for Pilate, Christ seems insane. He and his soldiers therefore mock him saying, hail king of the Jews and put a crown of thorns on his head and clothe him in purple. Pilate then tries to give him back to the Jews because he doesn't see a threat in him. They answer, we have a law and by that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. We are so used to reading this from the Jewish angle, from the angle of a charge of blasphemy, but we need to see it from the Roman angle as well. What John tells us is that this charge frightened Pilate. It frightened Pilate. Sons of gods were after all kings. That is what it meant to be a son of God. Caesar himself was the son of God. Nevertheless, Pilate sees no actual power in Christ. And so he tries again to release him. And the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. That's the sequence, right? They're, They're making a theological argument. And this is the decisive charge. The Jewish leaders connect the dots in no uncertain terms. Caesar's power is as a son of God. This man claims to be the son of God. Therefore, this man claims to be a rival king. We have to see here how the Jewish leaders themselves are advancing Rome's own political theology against Christ. They were asserting that he was a threat to Caesar as a rival king, as a rival son of God. That is the charge. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to them to them to be crucified. So we have to stop. This is extremely disturbing. They cry out, we have no king but Caesar. What is a king, right? What is a king? The king is the son of God. Who does Christ claim to be? The son of God. And so a king. Who is Caesar? A king. And so the son of God. So if Caesar is their king, who then is the chief priest and the Pharisees God? Is it any longer the Lord God or is it the Roman God? power. The chief priests and the Pharisees were the custodians of the divine law, of the very law of God that he had given them as their king. They had come to pervert the divine law in such a way that it no longer attempted to reach beyond its own confines, to make contact with its creator. The law had become a self-enclosed mechanism of social control that was operated by the elites. It had become a mechanism of power. It had become no different, ultimately, from the law of Pharaoh or the law of Caesar. The final apostasy was to assert that the breaking of the divine law was identical to the breaking of the law of Caesar, that it was, in effect, his law, that he was the divine lawgiver, the true king. And this is exactly what the chief priests and the Pharisees do. In order to defend their own power, ironically, they made themselves slaves to other men. They made Caesar their god. This is the tragic paradox of sin and fear. The lust for power, the libido dominandi, always leads to slavery. This is the the dynamic of all politics after the fall and without Christ. In the crucifixion, the Romans unleashed all the power they had. They tortured and killed Christ. The kings of the world only have such violence, such external power. Had Pilate and Christ's ad- accusers been right about the world, this would have worked. If raw physical power is what characterizes the sons of gods, <clears throat> excuse me, in his crucifixion, Christ would have been robbed of this status. Death is the ultimate moment of powerlessness, the ultimate moment of defeat. The onlookers understood this, saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross. But rather Christ dies. Christ defeats the power of the sons of gods in a totally unexpected way. Christ defeats this power by passing through it, by dying and being resurrected. When he rose from the dead, he was not a ghost, not merely a spirit that the forces of the world could safely ignore. Instead, his body was raised. The thing that the kings of the world dominated, his body escaped their grasp. The resurrection is the final undoing of the power of fear because it trumps fear with hope. If the resurrection is real, what power does fear have left? Can those who hope in the resurrection be ruled by the law of fear? Isn't it rather ironically that the instrument of fear, the cross becomes itself a symbol of hope. This is the great reversal the political revolution that Christ initiated. The crucifix and the empty tomb render Caesar and so the gods powerless. This was the good news. It was the establishment of the kingdom of God, an establishment codified with the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the apostles transition from fear to hope. Christianity spread quickly. Estimates of its rate of growth are incredibly, incredibly difficult to make. However, it seems that by the year 250, about 2% of the Roman population was Christian, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually around 2 million people. A 100 years later, that number was 57%. So in a short period of time, Christianity went from a small sect to a faith that could claim the majority of the empire, including the emperors themselves, as members. How? Christianity proposed a new path to peace. Rather than a cosmos, of chaos, a cosmos of chaos that is put in order by violent power, Christianity proposed that the universe had been made out of nothing for peace and harmony and subsisted in this peace, what St. Augustine calls the tranquility of order. The universe was rational. It was not violent power that provided order in this universe. Rather, violence was what tore its harmony apart. Rather than the source of order, Arbitrary will was the source of disorder. Order, uh, (coughs) sorry, order came from, from truth and love. This was a radical inversion of the pagan understanding. The early Christians enacted this inversion immediately among themselves. They lived in common, sharing all things. The weak and needy were given more, and the strong and prosperous gave more. As Saint Clement tells us, they lived as if they were one body, feeling directly each other's joys and pains. They believed that all people were called to this life and that all people, even women and slaves, were capable of achieving true freedom in virtue through grace. The contrast of pagan society could not have been starker. Excuse me. Christians became known by their love as Christ had commanded them. The Didache, an important Christian document from around the year 100, exhorts the early Christians Do not hate anyone, but reprove some, pray for others, and love still others more than yourself. Their love was the cause of their profound unity. Unity in faith and charity was the antidote to the anxiety of pagan society. Saint Ignatius of Antioch wrote of faith and love, this is the beginning and end of life. Faith is the beginning, love is the end, and the two together in unity are God. All other things that lead lead to nobility of character follow. To a world of fear, Christianity offered salvation. This was a salvation that not merely awaited one in heaven, but a salvation that started in this life, in the society of peace called the church. This salvation flowed into the church through Christ and his sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Again, St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote, For when you frequently gather as a congregation, the powers of Satan are destroyed, and his destructive force is vanquished by the harmony of your faith. Nothing is better than peace by which every battle is abolished, whether waged by those in heaven or by those on earth." The church offered a stable, peaceful society of order and unity that was the near opposite of the pagan understanding. And yet it held together. It worked. This is what drew the attention of the Romans because it seemed impossible. It was literally amazing. In Christ, things had changed. Real peace became possible because of the hope that flowed out of the cross and resurrection. What I mean is this. Love itself in our fallen world takes on the form of the cross, at least in part. This is so because when we love, we expose ourselves to the effects of sin. We trust. And when we trust, it is quite possible that we will be betrayed. It is more or less guaranteed that we will be hurt. But love doesn't attempt to control for this. It doesn't doesn't attempt to build systems of power to ensure that one's loved ones doesn't have the power to hurt us. Love doesn't make contracts. On the contrary, loving is making oneself vulnerable because because it is the ordering of power to truth. This is madness in a world of struggle for survival. This is madness in a world of crosses without resurrections. Love becomes a possible foundation of social order exactly because the fear of death is no longer the final variable determining human action. Rather, another layer is added, resurrection and so hope, which renders the fear of death secondary, renders it capable of being overcome. This is what attracted the millions of converts to Christianity. It was also why the pagan by the pagans, uh, why the pagan rulers sought to stamp out Christianity. The reason for the conversions and the reason for the persecution are the same reason. Indeed, as the Christians grew in numbers over the second and third centuries, they became increasingly obnoxious to the pagans. The pagans were right to see Christianity as a threat to their order. Christianity really did undermine paganism and the political and economic systems that were integral to it. And the Christians knew what they were doing. They did not teach that the pagan gods weren't real. They taught that they were wicked demons in league with with vicious men whose real power was present everywhere there was violence and suffering. The Christians taught that God was the creator of all and that all that was good and true, even in paganism, was fulfilled in Christianity. Nothing that was good was really pagan. As St. Justin Martyr remarked, whatever things were rightly said among all men are the property of us Christians. This was very aggressive. But even more aggressive was the Christian assertion that Jesus Christ was the only son of God, a title as we have seen that was claimed by the emperor. The Christians insisted that Christ was their king, that he was in fact the true king of all men, whether they liked it or not. They refused to worship the emperor because they were already worshiping the true God king. As one Christian responded under interrogation, I do not recognize the empire of this world but rather I recognize my Lord, the King of Kings and Emperor of all peoples. They even dated some of their documents, not with the name of the reigning emperor, as was customary, but with such such formulas as this. During the reign of Jesus Christ, King forever, to whom be glory, honor, majesty, and an everlasting throne from generation to generation. Amen. This is not passivity. This is brazen. This is a bold provocation. This was not only atheism in the eyes of the pagans, it was simple treason. It was also very confusing to the pagans. For example, as the pagans led St. Polycarp to his death, they repeatedly pleaded with him to offer sacrifice to the emperor, to merely acknowledge him as, as divine, as Lord. Why wouldn't he do such a small, meaningless thing, they asked. He responds by insisting that only Jesus Christ is his God and his king. This was baffling. As we have seen, to the pagans, power was divine, and the emperor was obviously powerful. To the pagans, as the emperor killed the Christians, he was at the same time proving them wrong about the kingship of Christ. He was proving that he was powerful and that their God was weak, that he was divine and that their God was nothing. Martyrdom appeared, therefore, insane. This was, of course, a reenactment of the encounter between Pilate and Christ, and the early Christians knew this. Throughout their martyrdom accounts, the martyrs are described as reenacting Christ's passion, as participating in his suffering and death with their resurrection to eternal life always before them. The Christians understood exactly what was happening. They understood that fear had been overcome by the courage that only the hope of Christ makes possible. And they understood that this was the undoing of Caesar. The early Christians' arguments with the pagans were often genius in their subversive logic. Tertullian, for example, argued that sacrificing to the gods for the success and prosperity of Caesar didn't make any sense because Caesar was clearly the one with the real power in paganism. Even the dutiful pagans, he argued, were more afraid of Caesar than they were of the gods. The gods, Tertullian argued, were less powerful than Caesar. They were below Caesar, under his dominion. Here, Tertullian was exposing the very heart of the political theology of pagan kingship and the idols that were the mechanisms of pagan power. In a move of subtle genius, Tertullian asserted that Christians prayed to God for the emperor and that they respected him as the highest man whose authority was given him by the one true God. Here he was offering Caesar an office, but it was an office now positioned below the divine and not above it. Rather than divine being under the dominion of. Did my mic just go off? Yeah. Okay. You can probably hear me anyway, though. Yeah. No. That's it. <laughs> all right. All done. <laughs> so we win. So, uh, what should I do? Do you want me to just talk loudly? Can I yell? Um. Should we do? Should we just keep going? Yeah, just keep on on. All right. Um. All right. Here we are. Where was I? Okay, rather than the divine being under the dominion of Caesar, rather than the gods mediating the power of man, if Caesar were to have the Christian's loyalty, he would have to come to understand that things were the other way around, that he was under the dominion of the one true God, and his power could only be the mediated power of God. Caesar's authority could be real, but he could never have the power of a God-king. We can see then why the Roman elites, who had a pretty good sense of how paganism worked, viewed Christians correctly as a threat to the order of the empire. The subtle and in no way naive elites believed that the world was a world of violence and disorder and that it was only the power of the empire that held chaos at bay and that maintained their privileges. The pagans were not wrong about Christianity. They were not wrong about Christianity's threat to their world. They were not wrong when they perceived martyrs to be the destroyers of our own gods as one crowd shouted at the Christians as they're being killed in the Colosseum. What they were wrong about was the conviction that their world was the only possible world. The world needed a God King. The pagans were right about that, but it needed the true God King, a God King who was not like the others, who rendered all the others superfluous. It needed Christ the King. The acceptance of martyrdom was the demonstration that the Christian had moved into a world that was governed by this king, by different rules, that was governed by the logic of the resurrection. The same love that made the Christian society of peace possible, the same willingness to risk love, was the basis of martyrdom. The Christian had already accepted the cross in his love of God and neighbor, in his acceptance of membership in the kingdom of God. For most Christians, of course, this cross was experienced only in the, in the betrayals and struggles of normal life, but it was real and its acceptance was already the acceptance of martyrdom, even if the Christian was never called upon to make this ultimate display of hope. When the pagans then saw the peaceful society of Christians and when they saw the courage of the martyrs, they were seeing one and the same thing. They were seeing, of course, Christ himself. Christ was being made real to them as the church. This is why they converted. As Christianity spread, so too did the frequency and intensity of persecution. Faced with the slow collapse of pagan society, some factions sought to double down on paganism, to centralize power, to further demonize power, to create ever more complete mechanisms of domination and fear. At the end of the third century, Diocletian, a man of remarkable ability came to the imperial throne. He was determined to strengthen the empire through uniting it under the empire-wide cults as he built an authoritarian state. Under Diocletian, the divinity of the, uh, the, divinity of the emperor was emphasized as the, as the conduit through which the will of the gods governed mankind. He went so far, in fact, to assert that he was Jupiter incarnate. He demanded to be adored as a god. Adorned in gold and jewels, he hid himself behind a veil as men crawled before him to kiss his feet. Diocletian sought unity in the empire through establishing himself as a man-god above all other gods, as the king of kings and lord of lords. He uses that for him. This led, in the year 298, to the great persecution. The persecution wore on for seven years. Countless churches were burned and thousands of men, women, and children were killed. One eyewitness, the famous historian Eusebius, witnessed an assembly line of decapitation, writing, the murderous ax was dulled and worn out and was broken in pieces while the executioners grew weary and took it in turns to succeed one another. In 305, Diocletian abdicated the imperial throne, and some years later, he died, likely through suicide. Shortly after this abdication, The persecution came to an end. The pagan empire had done its worst in a last-ditch effort to eradicate Christianity and reestablish the power of the god kings, and it failed, like Pilate. Christianity rose from its passions stronger than ever, and in seven short years, there would be a Christian emperor, Constantine. The rule of the god kings, who used the gods as the basis of their power, was over. Constantine worked to eliminate almost all pagan sacrifice in the empire, to eliminate the system of anxiety and fear that underwrote the power of the gods and so of tyrants. It took another 100 or so years before the empire would be converted through and through, but this was the decisive step. Without sacrifice, without cult, the gods were reduced to mere fairy tales. This was a regime change, a revolution even, The Christian emperors were not gods. Their power came not from below, but from above. The Christian priests did not serve royal power. Rather, the priests made just royal power possible through the preaching of the truth and the mediation of grace in the sacraments. The gods did not mediate the power of men. Men mediated the power of God. Christianity tied human power, always beyond its immediate manifestation, to a source and standard that it did not control. Only God ultimately had perfect power. An episode that occurred in 390 demonstrates this new reality. The Emperor Theodosius suppressed a rebellion in Thessalonica, massacring thousands of people. He returned to Milan where he lived and attempted to enter the cathedral for mass. He was met at the door by the Bishop, St. Ambrose. Ambrose refused him entry, stating that his great sin forbade him from participating in the sacraments. The emperor was excommunicated. Ambrose pleaded with the emperor, you are a man, you have met temptation, conquer it. Sin is not removed except by tears and penance. Theodosius left heartbroken, but soon returned, ready to submit to the bishop and to do penance for his sins. This was a new reality. It was not that the bishop was now king. Ambrose could not order Theodosius's armies into the field. The the bishops and the emperor needed each other, and the Christian people needed both. Power was dispersed and yet more fundamentally unified because the kingdom found its unity in truth. This is the truth that Christ was speaking of in his trial with Pilate, the truth that creates a kingdom not based on armies. Ambrose was not able to impose penance on the emperor because he had his own army, because the saint, because the saint was more powerful than the emperor. Rather, he could impose penance because the emperor bowed to truth, because truth and not power reigned over both the bishop and the emperor. Christ was king. Of course, the kingdom of God in its perfection is the church triumphant, but the church militant is the part of the kingdom that sojourns on earth. It is the kingdom in anticipation, the kingdom on pilgrimage. The kingdom that still has with it the cross and so hope in the resurrection. The kingdom on earth is a kingdom that is built, I think we can say, on courage, on valor. The valor that underwrites a society of love and which maintains openness to martyrdom. As we have seen, the construction of societies of peace, which attracts the world, and the willingness to suffer for the faith, which also attracts the world, are two aspects of the same orientation the same hope and so courage. What all this means is that, is that Christian politics is not just worldly politics with a different ideology. Christian politics is the politics of peace and hope and not of fear and violence. Christianity does not opt out of politics. Christianity is not quietist or pacifist or apathetic or detached. Christianity squares up to the powers of the world to Pontius Pilate, to the mocking and abusing mobs, to the emperors, even Diocletian, and dares love. Christianity risks it. This is just straight heroic valor. And in this valor, we build both communities of true peace and undo systems of unjust power. We free ourselves from the domination of the gods, the powers of the world, through a courage that both undoes their power and builds the foundations of a different order. This is why tyrants try to destroy communities of love, because they fear the valor that both creates them and that flows out of them. As St. Thomas Aquinas explained, and please excuse the long quotation here, for tyrants hold the good in greater suspicion than the wicked. And to them, the valor of others is always fraught with danger. So the above mentioned tyrants strive to prevent those of their subjects who have become virtuous from acquiring valor and high spirits, in order that they may not want to cast off their iniquitous domination. They also see to it that there be no friendly relations among these, so that they may not enjoy the benefits resulting from being on good terms with one another. For as long as one has no confidence in the other, no plot will be set up against the tyrant's domination. Wherefore, they sow discords among the people, foster any that have arisen, and forbid anything which furthers society and communion among men, such as marriages, banquets, and anything of like character, through which familiarity and confidence are engendered among men. Tyrants fear more than anything else, communities of love rooted in truth, our families, our churches, our networks of friends, because it is from these that courage emerges. Can't we see that when modern society abandoned Christianity, we abandoned at the same time these communities? We have minimized and even tried to destroy the family. We have chosen TV and social media over friendships. We have so often turned our churches into weekend charitable societies or self-help clubs. We have minimized the liturgy and the sacraments. We have fooled ourselves into thinking that the pursuit of wealth and status is more important than our duty to our families and communities. We have chosen individualism and consumerism. We have chosen comforts over struggle. We have chosen not to risk love anymore. And in doing so, we have dissolved nearly all associations that were built on solidarity and not on gain. This is a turning away from the kingdom of God. Should it surprise us then that the gods and their kings have returned? Our world is again a world of tyrannical and so superstitious power. It is hard for us to sometimes see this because we use different words than did the ancient pagans. But the gods have returned. Fear again reigns. People, again, fear large, impersonal forces whose will is mediated to us by an elite. People, again, seek rewards through ritualized submission and are, again, horrified by those who won't. I'm not just talking about COVID. Our situation long predates COVID. In fact, the most important of our new gods, the god whose cult dominates, I think, is probably the market, the source of the wealth and the stuff that we so desperately pursue. This is the form that our gods are taking, but they are not sociologically different from the ancient gods. Like the ancient gods, they are human power that is alienated from its source and turned against the very people who make it up, inducing fear and so submission. Self-interest and the desire for power on the part of the elites, and a desperate scramble for their scraps on the part of the atomized and anxious masses is rebuilding the type of servile pagan regime that Christianity had once undone. This should not scare us. Christianity is literally for this. Christ's cross and resurrection, the very heart of the gospel, undid this sort of world. But for us to do this again, we have to remember that the central symbol of Christianity is the crucifix. We must be willing to take up our crosses and follow him. This is the valor, the courage, that will produce both the societies of peace that will shock and attract the neo-pagans and the willingness to suffer that will confuse them and render them powerless. We must begin with each other. We must become real communities of peace, neither wanting the rewards the world promises nor fearing the punishments it threatens. We must again render to God what is God's. And what is that? As Christ tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity is the solution to mankind's problems. I think we need to to again believe this. Christianity is the solution to mankind's problems. And love of neighbor and love of God is Christianity. This is the political solution. All others will fail. How's that for mixing politics and religion? <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Follow and subscribe in your podcast app for updates and notifications when new content is released. And thank you for listening. Together, our faith goes further.